So I am excited to share with you this week from John chapter 4. And this is the story of the woman at the well. And we're continuing our series here in Encountering Jesus, where we see throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus interacting with a number of different people, and we see how Jesus pointed them to the hope that is to be found in him. So I want you to see yourself today in the woman at the well. I want you to, in one sense, imagine that Jesus is having this conversation with you today and see the beauty, the beauty of the water that Jesus offers today. So can we pray and ask the Lord to help us one more time? Lord, would you meet with us? Would you draw near by your spirit? And would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law? Father, we just pause and we thank you for your kindness to us already in reminding us of what you've done on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of the message today is simply Thirsty. How many of you have ever been really thirsty before? Can you remember a time when you have been really thirsty? Um, as you know, uh, several of us this summer had the opportunity to take a trip to the Dominican Re Republic and serve with some of our missions partners. And one of the things that we did while we were there is we built a concrete floor of a pavilion. And um, let me just tell you, this was hard work. It was hard work because we did everything by hand. So we shoveled the sand, we carried the buckets of water, and we were in a tropical climate after all, so we were a sweaty mess. This was a hard, hard thing. And if you've ever mixed concrete before, you know when that concrete dust gets on you, what happens? I mean, it just like sucks the moisture right out of you. So you're like a prune, um, just dry as a bone which made us long for lunchtime. I mean, lunch break was something spectacular. Not only because they fed us like there was no tomorrow, but they served us this elixir that has changed my life, folks. It is called limonada. Say it with me. Oh, limonada. A beautiful, beautiful drink. I think, I'm sure it is the, the drink of all the gods that exist out there in the world. It is amazing. You know what makes up limonada? It, it, is, it is four ingredients. It is water, sugar, and the, like the cane sugar, like right off the cane type stuff. Sugar, freshly squeezed lim limes, freshly squeezed limes, and awesomeness. That is what goes into Liminata. So we would be sitting here at the table at lunch, and they'd already put out this amazing spread before us, and then they would bring this pitcher of icy goodness to the table, and it was like a shiver went down the entire table, like we just holding our breath in anticipation, and then you would drink that stuff. And I'm telling you, like, I, I had to go to a 12-step program after this trip here. I mean, I, I wanted this stuff for every meal, all the time. Limonada, it was a delicious, delicious thing. It is so, so good. Anyway, when we had that, it, it it, it reminded me of something. Simply this, when you are thirsty, you long to be satisfied. Is that not right? When you are thirsty, you long to be satisfied. It's this concept that J in Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well that, that is so powerfully illustrated. Here in John chapter 4, Jesus offers this woman living water that would not simply keep her physically hydrated, but would quench her deepest 
thirst. And here's the thing. This story has ongoing relevance events for today. Because like the woman at the well, whether they know it or not, people are still thirsty today. Would you agree with that? People are thirsty today. The trouble is, is that many people are looking to quench their thirst in all the wrong places. So people thirst for belonging, and they bounce from relationship to relationship. People thirst for esteem, so they seek it in achievement or wealth or their physical appearance. People thirst for pleasure, so they run after sex or alcohol or drugs or an ever-growing list of other amusements in the world. People thirst for meaning, so they work constantly or obsess over their family or put their hope in political reform. These longings, these thirstings are not in and of themselves evil, but the reality is this. Any attempt to replace the giver with his gifts is evil. Whenever we try to satisfy our thirst with something apart from God, with a gift of God rather than God himself, that is the nature of evil. It is idolatry is what the Bible calls this. But this is by no means a new phenomenon. It seems that human beings have long had the propensity to seek to quench their thirst apart from God. Listen to the word of the Lord in Jeremiah. It says this, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed a double evil. Okay, what, what is that double evil? They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and done what? And dug cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Do you know what a cistern is? A cistern is, is basically like a pit that collects water. Okay, so kind of get the image here. It's that Jesus is saying people have exchanged the fountain of living water for a cracked, broken cistern. Now think about what a cistern would be like if it was cracked and broken. I mean, it would be like this like little mucky junk down at the bottom. And just get that mental picture for a minute. It's like somebody saying, oh, there's a stream of cool, clear, living water. I don't want that. Rather, I'm going to get down on my face in this muck and mud and try to get some moisture out of this cracked cistern. It's utterly ridiculous. It's foolhardy, and at some level, it's very disgusting, right? And yet, that is what the Lord is saying here. The human heart has a propensity to reject the true water, the true thing that can quench your thirst, and run after all kinds of thirst quenchers that aren't the real deal. Look, Christ alone can quench your deepest thirst. Christ alone. I don't know what you're tempted to run after. I don't know how you feel that longing in your heart. Everybody is unique in some way, right? But we all have that longing. I don't know what you are pursuing to bring you satisfaction of that thirst, but the Bible consistently reminds us that Jesus and Jesus alone is the thirst quencher. Jesus is the real Gatorade, right? All the others are just the cheap imitations. 
It is this idea that Jesus drives home in his interaction with the woman at the well, which leads me to my point this morning. Here's where we're going. We must treasure, treasure, I choose that word intentionally, treasure the living water offered by Christ. This is the most valuable thing in the world. And I think what Jesus would urge us to do here is treasure this offer of living water that he holds out to anyone and everyone who would ever put their hope in him. If nothing else can satisfy, if sex or drugs or pornography or wealth or esteem or attractiveness or money or a great job or a house and two and a half kids with a white picket fence or the loft in the city... If none of those things can satisfy, then the only logical conclusion is that we must find our satisfaction somewhere else, namely in Christ. We must treasure the offer of living water that he holds out for us. But what is it about Jesus that makes him so unique? Why can he quench our thirst when seemingly nothing else can? We all know that we have this feeling of longing, of thirst in our hearts. Why is it that Jesus is able to meet that need and nothing else can? I think that's what John 4 is about. And we're going to look at that here this morning. So I want to show you four things this morning about the water that Christ offered. Four things about this offer of living water that I hope will show you why Jesus and Jesus alone can bring satisfaction to our soul. Number one, the water that Christ offers is impartial. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, John chapter 4 opens with an explanation of why Jesus and his disciples found themselves in Samaria. Namely, Jesus didn't want to be overrun by the crowds he was attracting, and he wanted to delay, at least for a while, his inevitable showdown with the religious leaders. So he takes a little sidebar journey through Samaria. So on his way from from Judea in southern Israel to Galilee in northern Israel, he's walking along. He makes a stop in the city of Samaria. He's worn out from walking all day, and he presumably sits down at the side of the well to kind of catch a little rest, sends his disciples into the city to maybe go buy some lunch, and he sits down there. Well, while he's sitting there, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well, so he asks her for a drink. Now, notice what the woman says to him. It's kind of weird. Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. John offers an editorial note to explain the woman's seemingly unusual response. Why do you begin a conversation like that? Well, John explains. Look at verse 9. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So what's behind that? What's going on there? Well, during the Old Testament era, when when the nation of Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria, Assyria was in the north of Israel, they were taken into captivity. And a lot of the Jews were deported, basically, taken out of their homeland and taken to live in Assyria. But some of them were allowed to stay. And those that were allowed to stay began to kind of intermarry with their Assyrian captors. So what was the result of these Assyrian and Jewish unions, the children that were born became known as the Samaritans. And over the years, there was this growing rift between the Samaritans and those who considered themselves to be the true Jews. You see, 
the true Jewish people considered themselves to be pure, religiously, ethnically. But they considered the, the Samaritans half-breeds at best and traitors to their God and country at worst. What's going on here? I mean, this is racial prejudice is what's happening here. They're looking down on this other group of people saying, we don't want anything to do with you. Why? Because the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. That's the woman's quote. In fact, when Jesus' opponents wanted to kind of throw shade at Jesus, here's what they said about him. John chapter 8, verse 48. Aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? A Samaritan, that became an insult when you called somebody that. It's just simply to illustrate the fact that Jews typically didn't have a high opinion of Samaritans. You with me on this so far? Jews and Samaritans, they didn't get along, and Jews typically didn't have a high opinion of the Samaritans. It is no wonder then that the woman is surprised that Jesus talks to her. But Jesus is completely undeterred. It's like she didn't even say anything. Verse number 10. If you knew the gift of God and who was saying it to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you water. It's, it's as if Jesus is saying, look, I know who you are and I know who I am. Now, do you want this living water or not? It's kind of like what Jesus is saying. I know who I am. I know who you are. I'm bringing you living water. Do you want it or not? It is the divine equivalent of whatevs. He's just like, yeah, I know. I know all the background here. I get it. Let's move on. Do you want living water? And it illustrates for us a critical principle. Namely, Jesus is the Savior. Listen to this statement. It, this gets cliche in church, but I want you to hear it very plainly. Jesus is the Savior of anyone who would trust him. Jesus is the Savior of anyone who would trust him. What Jesus is basically saying by his interaction with this Samaritan woman is that no race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, generation, or social status has the inside track on a relationship with him. No, Jesus came to rescue all kinds of people. Here's the reality for us today. You will never meet a person for whom the gospel is irrelevant. Why? Because living water is impartial. It's for anyone who would drink it. When Jesus saw the woman at the well, he did not first see a Samaritan or even a woman. I fundamentally saw a person in need of a Savior. In our deeply divided society, this should inform the way we look at people. When you look at a person, you should not fundamentally say, well, there's a black man or there's a white woman. Well, you'll get to that in a minute. But when you first see a person, here's what should go through your head. There is a person made in the image of God like me. Say like me. Like me. A person made in the image of God. Then you should look at them and you should say, there is a sinner in need of a savior like me. There is a sinner in need of a savior. Made in the image of God. Sinner who needs a savior. Oh, yeah. And they happen to be black or white or brown. They happen to be male or female. They happen to be rich or poor. They happen to be young or old. Those are all secondary details. Fundamentally, when Jesus came to the well, he didn't see a Samaritan woman. There's a person made in the image of God. Here's a sinner who needs a savior. 
I'm gonna step into that conversation and I'm gonna offer them living water. Woman, if you knew what I had to offer, you wouldn't be quibbling about Samaritans and Jews. You would be begging me to give you living water right now because I have the greatest thing in the world. That's the beautiful thing about the living water that Jesus offers. There is no one for whom it is irrelevant. The water that Jesus offers applies to anyone and everyone who would ever dare to put their hope in Jesus. Sometimes today, you hear this talk about exclusivity. Christianity is an exclusive religion. And the answer is yes. If you mean that we believe that there is one way to God, we are absolutely exclusive. But here's the thing about Christianity. Christianity is beautifully, exclusively inclusive. Here's what I mean. There is one way to God open to any who would believe. There is one way to God. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone. But is it open to all who would ever dare believe that message? Christ's offer of living water is so amazing because there is literally no one in your life for whom it does not apply. You don't have to create some sort of custom message. You don't have to say, do you deserve the gospel or is the gospel for you? No, the work of Jesus is for all who would trust in him. Number two, this offer of living water is not only impartial, it is transforming. Look at verse 10. If you knew, this is Jesus talking, the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you, what's it say? Okay, living water, that's terrible. And let's try again. You would ask him and he would give you much better. So Jesus offers the woman living water. What's that mean? Why does he just say like, Water. Why does he say living water? Well, Jesus clarifies in verse 13. Skip down there. Everyone who drinks from this water, meaning the water from the well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. Okay, so this water is different than regular water. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So when you drink this water, it doesn't just give you eternal life, but it it actually does something inside of you. When you drink the water that Christ gives, because it is living water, okay, let's see how closely you're paying attention, because it is living water, it gives you what? Life. When you drink living water, it gives you life. It fundamentally changes you from the inside out. Listen to this statement. Christ not only does something for you, he does something to you. When you trust in the work of Jesus, he doesn't just do something for you. Like one day you'll go to heaven or he justifies you or he adopts you. Those are all wonderful things and they're biblically true, but they're only part of the story. When God saves a person, he doesn't just do something for them. He does something to them. He changes them. And this is good news because the Bible tells us that we all fundamentally need to be changed. 
In fact, the Bible goes so far to say that we all have a problem. Every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever been born from a spiritual standpoint is actually dead. We are D-O-A, dead on arrival. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. Apart from Jesus, look, apart from Jesus, every one of us were spiritual zombies. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, we looked alive. We had some appearance of life, but we, you know, not really alive. A semblance of life. Unfeeling, unmoved, unconnected to God and his word and the truth, we were in some sense, no, not in some sense, in a real sense, we were all the walking dead. We had no spiritual life in us. But then when Jesus comes and you drink the living water, that all changes. The living water that Jesus offers is utterly transforming. God doesn't just do something for you. He does something to you. Here's how it's described in the book of Ezekiel. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse number 26. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone. This hard, unmoved, unfeeling rock of a heart. God says, I will take it out and I will give you a heart of flesh. What a beautiful thing that God does. When you drink living water, your hard, stony heart gets ripped out of you. And in comes a soft, fleshy heart that is now responsive to God and his word and the spirit. Those who trust in Jesus are no longer cold and hard to God, unmoved, unfeeling towards God. They are alive. You are alive if you've trusted in Jesus. What a gift if you have trusted in Jesus right now, right now, in this very moment, you are hearing the word of God. You are not just hearing some preacher preach. You are hearing God speak to you right now, in this moment. And you couldn't do that if you were dead. If you have trusted in Jesus right now in your life, you are convicted when you do wrong. Isn't conviction a gift? Isn't it a blessing not just to be able to do whatever you want? I have been preserved from so much evil by the fact that the Spirit convicts me and doesn't let me run after my own desires. Because you have trusted in Jesus, you have power, real power over stubborn habits in your life. I am not who I once was, and you are not who you once were. And that habit that is rearing its ugly head in your life, you can kill it by the power of the Spirit because you are not dead anymore. Because of Jesus, look at this, friends, you actually love and desire God. When we stand up and we sing, oh, the overwhelming Reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. Leaves the 99. Your heart actually says something. It's just not like, oh, the overwhelming. If that's you, by the way, I, I want to say this kindly. Maybe you're dead. 
That's not an insult. If nothing happens to you, maybe you're dead. And I would just urge you, there's living water available right now. You don't have to be dead anymore. You don't have to be cold and callous and unfeeling and unmoved by the things of God. You can be alive right now because when Jesus says to this woman, hey, if you knew what I was giving you, you would be buying. He says that same thing to you and I today. Brothers and sisters, the, the gospel, the offer of living water by Jesus Christ, it utterly changes us. Christ does more than just cure, treat your symptoms. He cures your disease. And it's a disease we all got. But Jesus, by offering this living water, changes not just what we do. He changes who we are. The gospel's not moral reform. It's a, it's a life-changing, inside-out movement. Number three. This offer is not only impartial and transforming, it is cleansing. Oh, this is beautiful. Unsurprisingly, although the woman doesn't fully understand, she's interested in what Jesus is saying. Verse 13, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. But once again, Jesus, as Jesus typically does, takes the conversation in an interesting direction. Go call your husband. <laughs> I mean, it's weird. What's going on? He told her, and come back here. She answers, I don't have a husband. Now, here's the thing, if you read the text. Her answer is technically correct. But the way that Jesus responds to this woman reveals his true intentions. Verse number 17. I can almost imagine Jesus with the tear in his eye saying this. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. It's as if Jesus is very kindly, graciously saying, all right, let's stop pretending. I know that it is no coincidence that you are here by yourself in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day coming to draw water. That don't make no sense. The other villages don't want anything to do with you. And frankly, woman, you understand exactly why. You've made a mess out of your life, haven't you? I think that's kind of what's behind all this. Jesus is looking at this woman, and he knows exactly what's going on. No matter how you slice it, the woman at the well was coming from a place of extreme brokenness. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, there's no way you have five husbands and you're living with a man right now and you are not coming from a place of brokenness and you have regret and guilt and shame and heartache and hurt in your life. So much so that you come to the well when no one else comes so you can get water probably by yourself and nobody else will bug you. And yet, and yet, Jesus knowing the whole story, he doesn't walk away. He doesn't be like, hey, get out of here. He doesn't leave. He doesn't flinch. In fact, it is to this woman, this woman at the well, that he offers living water. This is good news. This is super good news because it means your brokenness does not disqualify you from God's mercy. Your brokenness does not disqualify you from God's mercy. 
in fact the opposite of true. It qualifies you to receive it. Sometimes we think that we are too broken to receive God's mercy. And God's like, no, 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 no. It is for the broken that I came. There is no sin in you that is greater than the grace that is in Christ. There is no sin in you that is greater than the grace that is in Christ. Or as Jesus himself said it on a different occasion, Luke chapter 5, verse 31, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. To paraphrase Jesus, if you think you're spiritually healthy, you do not need the work of Christ. But if you know that you are desperately ill, then the great physician can heal you fully. You see, these hard words of Jesus to the woman were not him being unkind. This wasn't Jesus being rude. Wasn't Jesus trying to stir up controversy? He was just reminding the woman of her condition. He was just saying to the woman, this is the reality. Let's get out of fantasy land. Let's get to real world. You need living water because you are deeply broken. And this is often the Lord's ways, brothers and sisters. Listen to this. Jesus often exposes our hopelessness in order to become our hope. First, you need to know that you're broken before you can get fixed. You need to know that you're hopeless so you'll run to Jesus as your hope. So if you, like me, recognize the brokenness of your wicked heart, the good news is that Jesus sees it too. And he offers you forgiveness anyway. <laughs> wonder of wonder, miracles of miracles, Jesus looks down right to the bottom of the mess that is Ryan McCammick and says, I'll cleanse you anyway. I'll forgive you anyway. You got junk? Yes. You're a mess? Yes. You sin? Yes. Your heart is wicked? Yes. It's out of control? Yes. You made a mess of your life? Yes. Jesus said, great. You're in the category of the person that I came to save. Because I didn't come for those who think they're doing just fine. Me, I came for those who know that they are desperately sick and I will heal and cleanse and purify you. The good news of the offer of living water is that it is cleansing no matter how deeply you feel that you've wronged the Lord. Lastly, learn one more thing about the living water that Jesus offers in this passage. It's this, it's personal. It's deeply personal. For obvious reasons, the woman is struck by Jesus' intimate knowledge of her life. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? Go call your husband. Oh, you don't have a husband. Actually, you've had five. You're living with a man that's not your husband. She's struck. What's she say? Verse number 19. Sir, I see that you're a prophet. But then the woman launches into a question about the hotly disputed theological issue of the day. John chapter 4, verse 20. Again, this is weird. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is Jerusalem. Now, I don't know why the woman is raising this question at the minute. Was she trying to change the subject? Uh, I think maybe. Did she simply value Jesus' opinion? Maybe. I don't know. We don't, we don't know for sure. But Jesus' response to her question is really instructive. Verse number 21. Believe me, woman... The hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What's going on? Well, I think Jesus does like briefly address her theological concern. But this is certainly not the main point of what he's talking about. Did you catch that? It's like he's kind of like, yeah, 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 Jews, Gentiles, let's move on to bigger and better things. Rather than delving into the particulars of the argument, which I'm sure Jesus could have done with full ability, Jesus seems to be most concerned with how the woman is responding to the truth right then. I think his biggest concern is like, what are you doing right now? Verse 23, but that hour is coming and now here. Right now, woman, right now, it's here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. This is an invitation. Don't worry about the whole debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. Right now, the Father is seeking those who will worship him. What are you going to do? I think the idea is this, spiritually speaking, what you believe in the present is far more important than what you believed in the past. Brothers and sisters, what are you doing with Jesus right now? Now. Not what did you think, not how were you raised. What are you doing with Jesus today? In the American South, where most people have some sort of nostalgic connection, good or bad, with Christianity and the church, this is something terribly important to keep in mind because ultimately, it does not matter. Hear these words. It does not matter in an ultimate sense if you grew up in church. It does not matter if your granddaddy was a pastor. It doesn't matter if you used to read the Bible and pray every day. It doesn't matter if you were baptized when you were a kid six times. It doesn't matter if your family is very religious. None of those things actually matter. The question is fundamentally, what are you doing right now? Are you trusting in Jesus today? Because the fathers wants, wants worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth now. Now. Look, regardless if your background was good or terrible, all of us, every single one of us, must personally put their faith in Christ. All of us must do that. The Lord made this painfully obvious at the end of his interaction with the woman. Look at this, verse 25. The woman said to him, so he makes this revelation. I know you are the Messiah who is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So she's putting her hope in the Messiah. And then what does Jesus do? He basically tells her, I am the one, I, the one speaking to you, am he. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, I've told you what you need to know. The ball is now in your court. What are you going to do? I'm the one. I came to save. I am the one you've been waiting for 
Are you going to put your hope in me? And brothers and sisters, that's the same question Jesus is asking us today. What are you going to do? The ball is in your court. How are you going to respond to this offer of living water that Jesus holds out? I, the one who am speaking to you, am he. Believe all that Jesus says, then trust him. Put your hope in him. Put your confidence in him. Turn from your sins and rest exclusively in the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. So you hear all this and you might say, what, what am I supposed to do? And I think that's the question that Jesus is putting to us. It's basically this, what are you going to do with the offer of living water? I want to offer you two suggestions this morning, two practical ways that you can respond to this offer of living water, because it's not just for the woman of the well, it's for you and I. The first one is this, drink the living water deeply. (laughs) What the woman did not know was that the living water Jesus offered would be purchased at the greatest of price, right? She's sitting at the well. She doesn't know the whole story. What would happen in a short time from this conversation is that Jesus would lay down his life on the cross. Why? To purchase living water for anyone who would trust in him. Jesus died on the cross in one sense to give all of us the opportunity to never thirst again. In fact, as the biblical story comes to a close, The risen Christ announces this, Revelation 21, verse 6. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And what does he say? To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And why is there no payment? Because he paid the price. So drink deeply from that water today. Chug it. Pour it on your head. Guzzle it. Drink deeply of the water. The invitation for us is the same as it was for the woman. Drink. If you're thirsty because your life is a mess, drink. If you're thirsty because your heart is broken, drink. If you're thirsty because your burden is heavy, drink. If you're thirsty because your shame is unbearable, drink. Spiritual thirst is meant to drive you to the living water. That's the purpose of spiritual thirst. Are you thirsty? Yes. Go to the right spot. God put that thirst in you to drive you to Him. Don't go to the broken cisterns, they won't quench. Don't go lick up that mud. That's disgusting. It's not satisfying. Go to Jesus. He will satisfy you. So drink deeply. Stop fooling about with the things that won't satisfy and drink deeply from the one and only thing that will. Jesus' offer of eternal life. Two, share the living word freely. Oh, this story is fantastic, by the way. I mean, as beautiful as the interaction with the woman is that Jesus had, it gets better. So the disciples come back, presumably from buying lunch, and they're like, Jesus, you hungry? And then Jesus kind of goes into his like, 
you, I have food to eat that you do not know of. So Jesus is cryptic with them. And, and I imagine as they're having this interaction, Jesus turns and he says, hey, guys, look over there. And there's these people that are coming, Samaritans, that are coming to where Jesus is. It's because the woman went back. Look at what it says in John chapter 4, verse 39. Now, many Samaritans from the town believed in him. Why? Because of what the woman said. Well, I love that. Because of what the woman said. And she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this is really the Savior of the world. It's, it's wonderful. The woman so valued, so valued what Christ was offering her that she couldn't keep it to herself. It just burned in her heart. You know, sometimes, sometimes uh, secular companies stumble onto deeply spiritual, profound truth. And you know who did that recently? Coca-Cola. So I have a little illustration here. So let me show you um, what Coca-Cola has done. I have here, because when I get preaching, sometimes I get a little thirsty. Um, thank you. You want to be my valet now? That's awesome. That's great. So I, I have, uh, have a little cooler here. And, uh, <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yep. I have an icy cold. It really is icy cold, icy cold Coca-Cola. And, um, you know, when you do this, anybody like this sound? Oh, yeah, that's good. And uh, I'm just going to just give me a moment here. Okay. Oh, man. Hang on. Yeah. That's amazing. It is so cold and it is so good. And my throat is a little parched from preaching. So, and it says MVP, which, you know, okay. So, yeah. But, but Coke really had a brilliant advertising strategy, didn't they? On the side of their cans. Have you noticed that? It says, share your Coke with an MVP. So I shared a Coke with myself. I don't know what that says about my self-awareness, but uh, good job, buddy. Um, why? Because they want you, when you enjoy something, the natural impulse is to do what? Share it. When something's really good, when you value it, you become in one sense an evangelist for that thing. So let me just illustrate here. What, what do I got here? Mm. Ooh, share a Coke with a legend. That's got to go to Bill Murray right now. I'm going to take that over to Bill. Bill. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. Have, have a drink. Have a drink right now. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. That's a good sound. Yeah. Yeah. It's cold. I told you. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Some of you are salivating a little bit right now. Fortunately, fortunately, what do I got here? Uh, ooh, share a Coke with a super fan. I'm going to make a really unkind joke right now. Um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> Let's see. Uh, l let's just do Tyler. Poor Tyler. Oh, poor Tyler. Poor Tyler loves his Georgia Bulldogs. And uh, they did. But so a consolation prize there. Go ahead. Take a drink, Tyler. Go ahead. Right now. Right now. Yep. 
Okay, okay. It's good, right? Yeah, it is good. It is good. Oh, share a Coke with the winner. Who's looking like a winner today here? Everybody's like, <laughs> me, me. Okay. I think Helena did a great job, so I'm going to let Helena be a winner here today. Very good, yeah. It's good, right? Go ahead. Yeah, you had to do it. It's fairly amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. Look, right now I'm an evangelist for something silly like Coke. And I mean, br- it really is brilliant. Share a Coke with someone. Why? Because they say you see value in it, tastes good, brings you enjoyment, and you naturally want to share. You see the smiles on their face when they took a drink. I'm sorry. Um, that's it. Church plant. Church plant budget. So that's all. Okay. But the idea is simply this. Man, if, if our impulse is to share something as simple as a Coke with somebody, how much more should we want to share what really quenches someone's thirst, right? I mean, this is good. It tastes good. And man, it makes my mouth feel good for a minute. But I want people to be quenched for eternity. So share living water with a coworker. Share living water with a family member. Share living water with your spouse. Share living water with an aunt or uncle or cousin, with the neighbor, with whoever, with anybody who would dare to believe because this, this living water, the real living water is for everybody. And it changes them from the inside out. And if you trust in it, it will give you eternal life. Brothers and sisters, let's share the living water because we've drank deeply. We've been deeply satisfied. And so we're going to share it with others. Amen. And let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that your offer of living water is good. And then it changes us. Lord, I pray that we would drink deeply. I'm just going to do something very simple here today. I want you to just take about 10 seconds and I want you to right now drink deeply of the living water. Think about what Jesus has done for you. How has he changed you? How did he come to you? Of what has he forgiven in you? Right now, I want you to think about that. Just meditate on the goodness of Jesus. Drink deeply of that living water and how he rescued you from your sin. As you keep your heads bowed and eyes closed, let me ask this question. Is there anybody here that would say, you know what, I've never drank of that living water, but the Lord is doing something in my heart right now. And I want to pursue this living water. I'm not sure exactly what to do, but I want to pursue this living water. Just raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass you, but I would love to pray for you right now. Not by name, just quietly pray for you. Is there anybody here that would say, I need a drink of this living water for the very first time? Would you just slip your hand up quietly?
Okay, let me ask a second question. We've sought to drink of the living water. How many of you would say this week, you know what, by God's grace, I will seek to share the living water freely this week. I'm not going to count. I'm not going to do anything. This is really for your own accountability, where you, between the Lord, you're saying, I'm going to attempt to share Christ with someone this week. Just put your hand up, put it right back down. Amen. 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 That's between you and the Lord. Just a bit of an accountability for you. Amen. Anyone else? I'm going to try to share Christ this week. Lord, would you help us to be faithful? Help us to drink deeply and share freely the living water that Christ offers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to worship the Lord, but let me remind you of this one simple truth. Sometimes we get afraid of sharing our faith. We think it's going to kind of be a, a burden on us. And true, there are fears that we, we have to overcome. But the reality is, is the more that you share Christ, the more your joy in Him increases. You shouldn't just share Christ for those that don't know Him. You should share Christ for you. Because as you share Him, He will become more and more precious to you. Let's sing together and worship the Lord.